Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Merritt Korm from WellRhythms. Merritt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. Great to have you on. What we seek to do here on this show is really challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their healthcare costs and improve value for their employees. So to get us started, I'm just going to read a brief bio about you so our audience has a little bit of context about yourself, and then we'll get into the interview. Very good. All right. So as Chief Executive Officer of WellRhythms, Inc., uh, Dr. Merrick Korm focuses on the self-funding community, providing financial wellness using proven algorithms. He is an expert in medical bill review and associated litigation, having frequently appeared as an expert witness for many large insurance companies and payers, and has been instrumental in establishing case law with respect to healthcare reimbursement. The cornerstone of Dr. Korm's vision is transforming healthcare through transparent and economically sustainable payment practices. Dr. Korm was a practicing physician and since 1990 has worked in various aspects of the insurance industry, combating abusive and fraudulent billing practices. Dr. Korm served as a consultant and medical director for many organizations, both public and private, and in recent years co-authored the critically recognized book, Stop Paying the Crooks with Newt Gingrich. All right. Anything else you'd like to add there, Merritt? I think that about covers it. I've done quite a bit. <laughs> you, you certainly have. Let's start there. I mean, you have an interesting career path. You started as a practicing physician and then moved into various roles in insurance and, and serving payers of healthcare. So just tell us a little bit about your personal journey and how you eventually came to launch Well Rhythms a few years ago. So my career actually started out in research. I went to medical school to do research, did that for about 10 years. And then tried to find a clinical practice that was somewhat related to my research, which I landed into occupational medicine. With that, I really developed relationships with both the insurance industry as well as practicing physicians who I referred to. Mm -hmm. And long story short, the state of Oregon was the first state to really enact any managed care legislation with respect to workers' comp. It was going bankrupt at the time. And so I started getting involved in the administration of medicine and managed care. That brought me to uh, HealthNet, and I worked at HealthNet developing programs for them. And then I saw the whole issue with respect to the disconnect between payments and what was being billed and the lack of standards there. I originally wanted to really work in the group health arena and create standards for healthcare reimbursement, but there was really no good case law that supported that, and the whole issue of balanced billing was problematic. So I basically uh, carved out a niche in workers' compensation where the court is the exclusive remedy and the patient's not involved. In that sense, in the last 20 years, I've been able to go and establish a lot of healthcare reimbursement case law. And I sold that company and the last two years formed WellRhythm. And now I'm working in the self-funded community, which really you know, is looking for cost savings with respect to their healthcare. The healthcare has just become so unaffordable. And the reasons for it 
are very different than really what you hear and what the political discussion is with respect to health care. So I am trying to create reimbursement standards that create reasonable costs for people, and it makes sense. I like that. Something that makes sense in healthcare, where where, right. <laughs> where traditionally nothing makes sense. You made some interesting comments there with relation to our healthcare system. If you look at some of the stats, you know, nearly a fifth of, of the U.S. economy goes to healthcare spending, and that's a right. far larger share than any other large wealthy country in the world. And most of the research suggests that it's price rather than volume of services that is the main driver in that disparity. As a result, you know, we have a growing affordability problem, even for people who have insurance. So in your opinion, what do you think is wrong with the current system today and how we purchase and pay for healthcare? Well, there's there's a number of things, but I think that it is really still very much the lack of transparency with respect to what the costs really are and what's driving. If you look at the way that networks today function versus how they function 10 and 15 years ago, you have a very different scenario. So there was a lot of things that the ACA did to uh, really try to regulate healthcare, and the result of that is something that really people have failed to comprehend in that more than anything else, with respect to what the ACA did was it accelerated insurance reform far more than anything else. So with all the requirements that went along with the ACA, the issue of being able to afford health care for employers and their employees was much more of a problem than it had been. And the only thing that they could do was to opt out of the system and become self-funded. Mm -hmm. The growth of self-funding since 2010 is astronomical. And so more than anything else, the only way to get away from the costs and the requirements of the ACA is to become self-funded. And today, what really people don't understand is almost 80% of all of our health care is self-funded and is not fully insured. So... All of the reform that people are talking about will not affect any of these things, and any of the ACA requirements are not part of it. Mm -hmm. If you look at the most recent legislation with respect to association health plans, that's only furthering and creating more opportunities for more self-funding away from the fully insured side. So there is a, a significant movement from the standpoint of how health care is paid and who pays it. But what hasn't happened is any transparency with respect to the price. Well, one, being fully insured is a guaranteed way to lose. The lack of transparency and, and the fact that given the MLR portion of the ACA, the only way that carriers can make more money is you know their profit margin off of a higher number. So they're not really incentivized to to lower healthcare costs. You know, we certainly are seeing more and more employers being interested in self-insuring, but the opaqueness and the lack of price transparency is, I think, a key flaw in that network model. That leads to the high medical inflation that we see year in and year out. So I, I think you're I think you're right on it. I think that's a nice point for us to kind of transition into the Well Rhythms product and service. So what is the service that you provide and, and what problem is it attempting to solve? 
So we really are providing two levels of service. The first thing we do is we provide the ability to look at some of these high-cost bills. And now it's not uncommon for us to see bills that are a million or more than a million dollars on a monthly basis from various people. And what do you really do to review that bill and come up with a reasonable cost? Mm-hmm. And so I think that one of the things that has to be understood is that the first thing you have to do is actually have the ability to review a bill and understand what that data means and what a reasonable price is for those goods and services and what goods and services really should be reimbursed for and what are basically part of another charge with respect to it. And so you have to be able to do bill review before you do anything else. So when you say you have to be able to do bill review, it's almost like you're insinuating that is it not happening today in the current form with most TPAs that are contracted with the network? It really hasn't. The expertise to do bill review requires a number of things. So mm-hmm. one, you have to understand the medicine. You've got to understand what services were provided. That takes you know, a significant amount of expertise. I've been doing this now for more than 20 years, so, but there's new things that come up all the time. My um, partner is an orthopedic surgeon, still practicing, and so orthopedics are a huge cost driver, and you have to have expertise there. And my other partner ran an oncolo- a huge you know, national oncology service, so being able to understand the oncology side as well has been very important. The other thing is that as, as physicians, you know, we know who to call when we have a question with respect to things and have that expertise. So the other thing is that you mentioned (laughs) is that it's got to be reasonable and people have to understand it. So I've been to court hundreds of times as an expert witness in testifying, you know, and I've developed credentials such that I can create language in a discussion that a judge can understand and actually make a determination from. And, you know, in a court of law, they really don't want to see physicians. (laughs) And they really don't want to be dealing with these issues. But when it comes to the reasonableness, what are you doing? Why did you do it? How did you pay it? If you don't have the ability to explain that to a lay audience, then any of these solutions are not going to work. And so that's really what we've done. I know that gotten a little away from the question you asked, but bill review is really a necessary part of what we're doing rather than simply repricing the bill according to the bill charges or a network contract. Got it. So the the two things that I heard there, you guys do medical bill review, but you also provide a service where you're establishing, you know, what is a reasonable amount of reimbursement for services? So let's dive into the medical bill review first. So the purpose of medical bill review is what is to is to find errors in the bill that you know, aren't currently being audited or current currently being discovered and employers, you know, paying more than they should describe what what kind of the purpose of medical bill review and the examples of what you find, you know, when you're looking at an employer, you know, who's working with a traditional network. So every hospital has a charge master. So all the services that are provided are created and you get this charge master 
So when the bill arrives, it has all these itemizations and all of these things with respect to what's being charged for and what is the right price with respect to how it's being done. So understanding that is very important. Now, there is a number of data sources that are available that really can tell you what the facility and what the charges and the reimbursement should be. And the guiding principle from the standpoint of case law is really English common law, which is known as quantum merit, meaning that if there is no contract, there's no fee schedule, then what the provider should be paid is what they usually accept and what is a reasonable cost. Okay. And so that is really the evidentiary standard. And then it's really the, the process of going through the bill and understanding what was delivered with respect to it. So you ask about some examples. And so there are revenue codes on the bill and those are typically a summary of all the itemizations under that department or under that type of service. So typically what you're going to have to do is understand what those revenue codes are. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes revenue codes are, are charged for that really don't have a clear crosswalk to a cost center that is understandable, or it may be state specific with respect to things. So, We recently saw a bill from the Midwest from a very well-known hospital and a revenue code appeared on that bill that typically is never paid in Medicare, but in that state is paid by Medicaid. So it is an appropriate revenue code, but the amount of that was was being charged was $242,000 with very little explanation as to what it was other than ancillary medical care and complex medical care. So three other review organizations have looked at this bill and said, yeah, that's a Medicaid quota. And of course, they, that's, that's, that's reasonable to be, be, be paid. But when I asked the question, what is this? They said, oh, we're sorry, that's a bed. And it shouldn't have been charged every day. It should have been a single charge for a special bed for 5,000 instead of 242,000. That's an example, and I wish I could say that that is an anomaly, but it's not. I mean, those are things that we're seeing all the time with respect to bill charges. And like I say, most people that are reviewing these bills are reviewing it for medical assessment appropriate of the code and not really looking at what the charges are in any review. Hardly any network that is part of a self-funding group is going to actually review the bill. We were recently uh, quoted in an article by NPR. This individual from Texas mm-hmm. was under Aetna. Aetna paid the bill, and when they were questioned as to what they paid, it was by contract. And they said, well, it was a self-funded entity. They just rented our network, and no, we didn't do any claim administration for them whatsoever. So... It's really a fallacy to think that if you have a network contract, that you really are being protected and, quote, 
insured from the standpoint of unreasonable charges and that somebody is actually looking at it. Yeah, this is something that we've talked about before on this show. And I asked for the example because I I continually, I want to call attention to this for our listeners. And there's this whole notion that, you know, you you contract with a TPA and, and a network and that they have your back, right? They're looking out for you and making sure that the claims that are being paid are appropriate. The more and more that we learn is that that's actually not the case. And they're not reviewing these hospital right. bills and they're simply just paying claims. A $200,000 error on a charge is huge for an employer. If you're the CFO, right, for any other of your fixed expenses in a business, wouldn't you be upset if you're paying a bill that nobody's looking after? I think there's just a lot of ignorance in the marketplace about the degree to which errors in hospital bills, double billing, unbundling, that these things, to the prevalence to which they exist. Yes. So there's how a charge master is constructed and how it's edited and updated is one of the things that there really is no transparency whatsoever. But I think that you bring up another significant point that if you are self-funded and you're using a network, well, that network isn't necessarily looking at all your claims for all the things that they would be doing if if you were in their fully insured side. So it's very clear that these networks have different contracts with hospitals and facilities, whether they're fully insured or they're simply leasing the network in a self-funded arena. And you know, there's a significant amount of litigation that illustrates this, that the network contract is different for the self-funded than it is for the fully insured. And obviously, what the, uh, the network is trying to do is drive people back to the fully insured side with respect to their coverage. But there is a significant lack of understanding that just simply having a network contract in a self-funded space is providing the same protection as you would in a fully insured site. Let me ask you just for another question to make you know this real for our audience. So this process of medical bill review, you know, on average, when you're doing this for a client, what type of savings does this yield on average over a multi-year period? Because obviously you could have a bigger impact one year versus another, you know, based on inpatient utilization. But on average over a multi-year period, I mean, what type of savings does this medical bill review yield for an employer? So if you look at what the repricing is doing compared to what just the the review, so obviously the bill has to be reviewed for appropriate charges before anything is repriced. And there's been numerous articles out there that, you know, that say that every medical bill has errors in it and anywhere from 30% to 100% of all bills have errors. Well, the financial impact to that is very significantly from bills. But what I have found is that about a third of my overall savings are actually coming from simply doing the review versus any repricing that's done whatsoever. So the amount of savings that are coming from just the review side mm-hmm. are enormous. And I think the example that I gave you you know, that was a $1.3 million bill that 242000 of it was simply disallowed charge. Yep. And there were other charges on that bill that were disallowed as well. 
And so, you know, you can't do 36 hours of ventilator care in a 24-hour day. <laughs> I, I shouldn't laugh, but, I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, if, you're, if you can't do a laminectomy, you can't remove a piece of, you know, somebody's spine when it's a redo back surgery and it's already been removed at the previous operation. But you have to understand medicine and understand what these things mean in order to find that. And my experience is that that happens. So that's one piece of, of what you guys do. So let's talk about the other piece, which you know, you've referred to, to repricing. Another, I think, word for that is, is reference-based pricing. And we've talked about right. that on this show before. And so let's talk at a high level, what's the difference between reference-based pricing versus, you know, prices an employer might pay in a traditional network model product. And then let's specifically talk about your methodology. So reference-based pricing has really emerged and, you know, significantly is growing because healthcare costs have just not been curtailed in any other way. So simply finding a percentage, a multiple of Medicare to pay overall has really what has created reference-based pricing. Mm -hmm. The problem is that Medicare as a basis is problematic because what Medicare multiple do you use? Do you use 130%? Do you use 140%? Do you use 150%? And it's actually very arbitrary. So being able to defend that and create a defensible basis for that is not an easy thing to do. The other thing is that there's lots of things that are really not covered under Medicare. And Medicare is looking at really a statistical number as to how people are being paid for healthcare services over a population, not on an individual bill. The whole reference-based pricing came out of CalPERS and some other large organizations that were looking at very well-defined, very specific procedures, such as total hip and knee replacement that had a significant amount of data behind them. And they could come up with a price as to what they were going to be willing to pay. And it had nothing to do with what Medicare was doing. But when they looked at that price, it was easy to go back and figure out what a Medicare multiple would look like. Sure. And for the underwriters, you know, it's easy to basically take a Medicare multiple and do the underwriting. And everybody wants that with respect to as they're selling health plans and selling their services. But the defensibility really goes is problematic. We do reference-based pricing, but we do it based on what providers typically accept and looking at all payment sources. Now, Medicare and government is certainly part of it, but commercial and private care also have to be considered. And if you're not considering all those things, it's problematic. And instead of giving a range or a percentile, we come up with a number and that's what it is. And we can do it on a bill by bill basis rather than looking at a population. So it is a methodology that is defensible and it has a lot of case law behind it with respect to the ability to truly defend it when it's challenged. So talk to us about why that's important to an employer or, you know, or an employee who has a claim. So if you look at what the litigation has been around reference-based pricing and where you know, the pushback is, 
you want to do what's fair, but you also don't want to be in a position. What you're doing is going to create case law that's, that's problematic and that you're doing something that's going to upend what's happening. So one of the things that has to be understood is that self-funded plans are governed under ERISA. Mm-hmm. So that's federal law. And really, the only kind of litigation under ERISA is going to be ERISA compliant. Did the provider get paid according to what the plan documents say? And it really doesn't do anything to establish what the actual price is. So federal law isn't going to help unless something actually happens in the Supreme Court, which is never going to occur. And what people have to understand is that it's going to really be case law that's established on a state-by-state basis with respect to what states adopt and how they look at this. Typically, if a provider pushes back, then what happens is there's a negotiation, an amount is paid, and it may or may not be within what the underwriting and what was originally proposed with respect to what what's happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the whole model in the beginning and the underwriting piece of it is problematic. And because the defensibility is so important, what it does more than anything else is that it unites and it integrates the entire team with respect to what they're doing. So you may very well have a reference-based pricing vendor. How does that vendor interact with the TPA itself or even, you know, more significantly, the stop-loss carrier? Because if these claims are paid above, you know, what they originally were, were repriced at, a lot of times that falls to the stop-loss carrier to make up the difference. Well, they're not going to be very happy about that if all of these, that they do underwriting at a certain number, and then because there's pushback from the provider, these claims end up in stop loss, and the TPA wants reimbursement for all of these large claims. So what we've been able to do is actually partner with stop loss carriers to say that they will indemnify and they will cover any court-ordered amount above what we are doing, but it prevents the TPA from simply going out and negotiating something that may or may not be a a reasonable number. But it unites the TPA, the reference-based pricing, and the stock loss in such a way that it really is an integrated and and, and a full-service entity that's looking much more like a fully insured plant. So... That's a long explanation, but really that, that's, what, uh, that's what we've been able to do. And that's a significant difference than has happened with the very siloed uh, reference-based pricing vendors that started out in this industry. Your method of repricing is fully indemnifiable, where if the court comes back and says that the employer owes the provider money, then the stop-loss carrier is going to pay that amount. What's happened is the stop loss carriers have come to us and they put me, you know, they put me in a room with their underwriters and their actuaries and said, explain to me what you're doing and how you're doing this and why this methodology makes sense. And again, I've had to explain to them in simple language what we've done, but also been able to show them the case law that we've had that in some states has gone all the way to the Supreme Court with respect to the overall methodology. They felt comfortable with that to underwrite it to that, that degree. 
which is a significant movement towards really changing healthcare delivery and establishing a reasonable basis to pay these claims. Okay, so I, I think I'm I, I think I'm starting to track with you here. So essentially, in a traditional reference based pricing structure, the TPA or the RBP vendor, if the hospital facility didn't accept the the reimbursement level, you know, they could negotiate, you know, up to a higher amount, right? And so right. what you're saying is you're going to use your formula to establish the reasonable reimbursement in that particular geography. And if right. the provider pushes back on your proposed reimbursement amount, you're not negotiating. And if you have to go to court to defend the method, then that's what you do. But you feel confident from the standpoint that you'll come out ahead because of the case law that has already been established. Yeah. What we want to do, I think I need to emphasize this, is we want to pay fairly. So if I, you look at my experience in the last two years and the amount of reconsiderations and appeals that I've had compared to most people that are doing reference-based pricing, it's probably you know 20% of what other people have had. And really, because I have a methodology that pays fairly, that looks at things, that's not simply a Medicare multiple, and I have experience, you know, in paying these facilities over the last 20 years. I know what they accept. I know what they're doing. But I also know where the fraud and abuse is. And I know where the problems are. And, you know, more likely than not, those are the places that, typically litigate because it's part of their business model. And if they really want to go to court, I'm more than happy to do discovery and start talking about how they put this together and how they justify these charges. And if they have a reasonable explanation, I'm more than happy to incorporate that into how we pay them. But to date, you know, they're pretty quiet, you know, when those questions are asked. And there's a good reason is because I'm paying appropriately. I, I want to be an honest broker with respect to health care. I want to pay the doctors yeah. and the hospitals fairly. Let's talk about that word, fairly. If an employer is generally thinking about reference-based pricing, it's because they don't think they're getting a good deal via the current network model and that they're getting gouged with all the price variation that exists in facility and outpatient and diagnostic imaging. And so at a fair reimbursement, if, if your methodology is delivering a fair reimbursement, again, what's the delta between that fair reimbursement and what people are actually paying in a network discount model? Well, our experience, it's been quoted that it can be high as 30%, but we've actually been seeing 40% savings over a network model in the areas that we've been working in. So it really depends on how abusive the billing is, but that's an important piece with respect to it. And so, you know, why wouldn't somebody use a reference-based pricing versus a network model? And I think that, you know, it's another huge myth is that in a network model, you never have any balanced billing. Well, that certainly isn't the case. And there's been a number of studies that show that there's just as much, if not more, balanced billing, you know, when you have a network as to when you're in a reference-based pricing situation. And I think the article that I mentioned earlier that came out of uh, Kaiser Health News and NPR, this individual was covered under Aetna and he still got a bill for $180,000. So 
the network certainly didn't do anything to protect against the, the balance billing issue. That's a great point. And just for our listeners, the, the context there is it was an emergency procedure. Gentleman, teacher had a heart attack and, you know, was taken to the nearest hospital. Aetna only reimbursed the out-of-network UCR amount. And, you know, this guy got, uh, you know, $108,000 bill. But I think due to the fact that an article was written about it, I think they didn't like the press and the bill was actually no. re- reduced to, you know, less than $500. Yeah. But but that's a perfect example of, of, you know, an egregious balance billing scenario that absolutely happens within a network model, for sure. Yeah. And, and I think that it's important that people understand that. What are you really getting from a network these days? And the industry has changed. It used to be that the networks really had the leverage over the hospitals and were able to negotiate and, and provide true savings. Well, that's no longer the case. If you look at all of the, the mergers and acquisitions and the consolidation in healthcare, all of it is to get leverage. And certainly today, the hospitals have significant leverage over the networks. If your networks are not able to provide you the same level of security and savings that they once did. No, and I, I think, look, for, for payers of healthcare, employers, traditional healthcare purchasing is, is a sure, sure way to fail. And by fail, I mean continue to have double-digit, high-single-digit medical inflation. A lot of the things we talk about in this podcast are really around strategies for, for payers to fight back, if you will, you know, drive you know, lower costs, you know, lower trend. And certainly, it right. sounds like this approach is something that could assist an employer you know, with that. I have another question I wanted to ask you with regard to reference-based pricing as it pertains to another form of provider reimbursement. And so specifically, I'm referring to capitation, which is the underlying (laughs) form of of provider payment under HMO products, which are really only prevalent in certain geographical parts of the country. But Certainly, HMOs have been proving to be more price competitive to PPOs, but capitation feels to me like the evil cousin to fee-for-service because it's a black box. There's no transparency with regard to to utilization of services relative to dollars paid, and it's still subject to crazy price inflation. So do you think that a self-insured program with your type of reimbursement structure can be competitive with some of the Kaiser and and ACO HMO models that are developing in in certain parts of the country? Yes, I think that it's not surprising given the cost of healthcare that the uh, capitation model is being reconsidered. I mean, being at HealthNet, kind of the people that started (laughs) HMOs and capitation, I understand that world very well. But you're absolutely correct. It's the lack of transparency is where the problem is. I think that in certain regions where there are strong networks, good relationships, the capitation model makes good sense. But it doesn't work everywhere, and the lack of transparency is definitely problematic. We certainly see in the markets that we work in that you know the, the capitated products still yield year in and year out six to twelve percent inflation. Kaiser's yeah. doling out fifteen percent renewal increases. To me, that's that's uh, you know still can be a lose lose situation for an employer. And again, it's the lack of transparency that's problematic. Is it what is driving that inflation? And so you've got the same issue with respect to just simply costs going up and everybody trying to get a bigger chunk of the overall healthcare dollar. But 
why is it going someplace rather than at another? And the lack of transparency and the difficulty in knowing how that's occurring is problematic. Uh, it's one of the things that is a very important aspect of what we do is we're totally transparent. I'm, I'm more than happy to tell people, you know, how we pay and why we pay. And that transparency really does convert to significant savings that, you know, you're not going to see that level of inflation year in, year out just because. So. Yep. so you guys, you know, are really doing the medical bill review and repricing. And so you're still working with the TPA, correct? Do you have the ability to work with any TPA? Yes. Perfect. What we do, we have to make sure that the plan document itself is consistent. Mm-hmm. If the plan document says you're going to pay a multiple of Medicare, well, then we're not going to be able to help them very much. Right. And so when you guys are working with an employer, one of the key things you do then is, you know, focus on the plan document and make sure that it reflects the methodology that you use to come up with your repricing. Absolutely. Got it. What's the fee structure for Well Rhythms? PEPM or, or any other type of arrangement? So, like I said, we provide two levels of service. We can do a full reference-based pricing model on a PEPM basis, Mm -hmm. or we can simply deal with large-dollar claims on a percentage of savings on a one- or two-time basis. And we have large payers and health plans as well as stop-loss carriers that send us those kinds of bills to reprice that are not part of our reference-based pricing program. So we do both. Got it. Makes sense. So Mary, you guys are a relatively new company in the marketplace, been around for for a few years now. So how many clients and members do you guys currently have? So we've been around for just two years now. But as I mentioned, my expertise came out of another company that was been around for 20 years that I sold. So at this point, we've got a couple of dozen clients and we're probably servicing between a thousand and fifteen hundred members in our reference based pricing program. And I would say we're probably doing fifty to a hundred ad hoc large builds on a monthly basis as well. Got it. Are you guys focused on a, a specific segment of the market or a specific geography within the US or, or do you have the ability to work with anybody? We really have the ability to work with anybody. It really has to do with how the plan is set up and their understanding of what we're doing and how, how we're doing it. So TPA that's never done a reference-based pricing program, then certainly we want some lead time to be able to set things up so that everybody has an understanding and that there's education with respect to things. I think the biggest issue with this is that when we talk about reference-based pricing because we're doing it differently, then really anybody else is doing it. There's a significant amount of education that goes along with it. Gosh, we've talked about a lot so far, Merritt. What are you most excited about right now in your business? Are there any improvements or enhancements to to the service um, that you're providing that's in the works for the future? At this point, you know, we're seeing renewals of people that we just started with. So Mm -hmm. always, you know, your first year is your most you know, difficult and rocky year, but being able to show these small employers through a level funded program with, you know, less than, you know, with 50 or less employees, the ability to have these kinds of cost savings and be able to sustain them is a huge 
accomplishment in, in the market. So being able to prove out the model really changed the way that healthcare can be paid for and delivered. And incorporating all the things that we're doing, I've just been overwhelmed at the amount of people that have really heard what we've said, it makes sense to them, and we've been supported. That wouldn't have occurred 10 years ago when the network model was so strong, there was no case law in place, and the balanced billing situation with the patient was just such that it just didn't make sense and you couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So I'm really very encouraged and hopeful that this model will grow significantly and will really change our healthcare system in a way that makes sense. I love it. Well, I think without people like you pushing the envelope, you know, we'd be stuck with the status quo. So I think that's, that's what we need in this, uh, in this healthcare marketplace is, uh, and you know, look, I, I feel more optimistic than ever because I think there's just a ton of, you know, people like yourself out in the marketplace, you know, doing good things to disrupt what is an industry that is essentially designed for higher costs. So very exciting. So Merritt, if there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? Well, you asked me just about everything that I can, I I can think of. So I'm not sure that there really is anything more. We've been pretty, uh, we've been pretty complete in our discussion here. All right. Well, very good. Very good. So how can people interested in, in the well rhythms product and service get in touch with you? Well, they can go to our website, wellrhythms.com and contact us and we'll look forward to hearing from them. Very good. Very good. Well, on behalf of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. I think it's been a great discussion and and certainly insightful. Thank you. I appreciate it. Like I say, I think this is a discussion that it wouldn't have happened even five years ago with respective things. So I think that we've come a long way. I agree. I agree. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. All right. That was another great episode in the books. Thanks to all for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. For those interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to WellRhythm's website and contact information, as well as a host of additional good content and articles. Now, I standardly ask for feedback about the podcast, and we now have over 19,000 downloads and really hardly any reviews. So I'm going to be a little bit more direct. If you're listening to this and you are enjoying the content on the show, please take five seconds today, open up that podcast app on your phone, go to our show's page and scroll down to the bottom of the page and let us know what you think with a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.